Okay, now we're good to go. Here we go. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We have Tandwe Fika Khadebe with us today, a co-founder of, not bad, yeah? A co-founder of Quilly? Help me here. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. No, no. Come on. Don't cough on. Do it. Do it. I don't know. I can't remember. Try. Tell me. Quilly. One more time. Quilly. 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 We're not going to get this. Why am I getting this wrong? Quilly? (laughs) Quilly? Quilly is what every English-speaking person Oh, now you went into it. Right? Because it's like a natural (laughs) sound. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just saying that's, you know, it's just, it's easy. It's like, oh yeah, Queen, Queen. Okay, I I'm gonna be a, quiet and just say the name of the company. Which Queen? Uh, Got it. I'm never gonna get it. Okay, Tanwe, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> you are a star. And let's talk about this before we get into the main part of our conversation. I mean, give our listeners a bit of your background for some context. Where are you? And why is it so, and then end with maybe why it's so hard for me to pronounce this, right? Go ahead. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm Tandwe Fika Khatebe. I'm calling in from Cape Town, South Africa. Nice. So, I mean, I'm a master's in development finance graduate and super, super, super passionate about my tagline is bringing prosperity to my people. Okay. And what that meant, really, if you if I had to just paint a picture of the context that I live in and where I grew up, it's no secret that Africa's got a lot of poverty around us. The biggest scandal in my country is that we're the most unequal society in the world. Go ahead. So it's not unheard of to see, look at Monaco, on your right side and on the left side is abject poverty of the slums. So I went off to study finance at the University of Cape Town, trying to solve for this. Particularly, I thought that finance was one way in which you could do that. Um, and hence why I went on to do a master's in development finance as opposed to traditional finance. And in my final year of studies, I started a NGO called Papama, which is spelled Fafama, but it's actually Papama. And the, the objective there was take the brightest minds on campus and university students and greatest know-how on the African continent mm-hmm. and place those minds on survivalist entrepreneurs with the objective of getting those entrepreneurs to scale so that they could employ people and, you know, by extension, bring prosperity to our people. And it was there that I began to understand what prosperity meant, right? Prosperity is just getting people into a place where they can just look after themselves without the need for any external uh, help coming in. Um, It's exactly what the Asian Tigers did. They built a whole lot of factories. They had a whole lot of mom and pop stores that were built and got people people to, to, uh, to, to, to survive and bring prosperity to themselves. So that's where I got that from Papama. Straight after that, I left, I ran the SADAC business for Duracell, so that's Southern Africa. So everything south of the DRC is what I used to do on behalf of Duracell, mainly as a distribution manager. So DRC, you mean the Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah, just for people that don't necessarily understand the 
yeah. the geography of Africa, but go the ahead. Lingo. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So I ran all those territories uh, on behalf of, of, uh, of the battery company. Wow. And I sort of felt distant from my original mission, which was bring prosperity to your people. I yeah. felt like being in corporate was a little bit of a cop out to the mission of, you know, guys like, bring uh, your saving your people from abject poverty which is a little bit silly but anyway um so that's where we started cleaning so i quit my job on the first of march of 2020 so for those <laughs> of you who might not understand where that is <laughs> is that you know wuhan was going crazy with covid and someone said hey man it looks like there's going to be some lockdowns around the world and i said yeah that's a great time to quit your job it's a great time to give up my own personal prosperity and try to focus on everybody else. But did you... Exactly, right? Tando, yeah. this, there's so much to focus on here. I want to back up a little bit, right, for people maybe of a different generation that don't understand why there's so much disparity. And when you talk about disparity, is it just in South Africa or is it in the entire African continent? I mean, to be fair, you're right. There is a lot of poverty and the perception is that there's poverty in Africa. I mean, we. I guess we could have this like five-hour conversation, right? Because you have 50 countries. I don't know how many countries there are in Africa. They're all very different as well. But if you want to talk about South Africa specifically, maybe we can talk a little bit about why in town A, there seems to be like unlimited prosperity and maybe in township B, it feels like what's the, why are we here kind of thing. Do you want to talk about this at all? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, you know, the, the reality, if you look at like, my country in particular, South Africa, we're an outlier on the continent. So we have, they call us the most advanced African country. And the reason why is because we have the best infrastructure. Banking system here it resembles that of the West and so on and so forth, right? It looks, structural economics look like, okay, but this is a developed nation. The re reason that's true is because during a, the apartheid government or the apartheid regime, they focused on uh, their own white minority, white people putting in a lot of infrastructure, business heavy policies, focusing on them and that part of the population. So you imagine a world where you have 90% of the resources going to 10% of the population. Mm. It's not hard to create something that resembles Europe, right? But that meant 90% of the population was starved of resources and living in abject poverty with very little access to, to basic needs and infrastructure. Right. Now, if you go further up on the continent, that's not true for everyone else. Actually, that picture is grim. In every country, it's a lot more equal, but still the, the standard of living at the highest level is lower than it would be in South Africa, right? Because they didn't build the same level of banking and technology infrastructure to make sure that anybody actually lived a life of what we would consider normal prosperity. Is that, is that fair? That I think that's fair. Um, and the economists, I'll leave it to the economists and the, uh, the social scientists yeah. to take down the granular detail, but in conclusion, yes, that's what it is. Right. I almost say that I think it's slightly unfair to say, well, how did South Africa get there? Well, South Africa got there for, by doing some very dark things to get to that level of prosperity. And it's just inherently, it's just not, it's, um, you know, if you're not an activist and you don't want to be an activist, that's fine. But anybody who lives in my context and looks out their window, you can't be comfortable with that. 
right? Like right. you can't go to bed at night thinking, okay, this is perfectly normal. I mean, it's okay for town A to resemble Dubai and town B to resemble the worst of the worst slums. Like that's perfectly normal. No. And by the way, they're right next door to each other. There's a street that separates the one, the, the, one, the rich, richest geography on the African continent, I think it still might be Santon per square meter, uh, which is in Johannesburg. There's a street that separates Santon from a township. Right, it's from a street. township. That's how close we are to each yeah. other. And we can see the abject, the, the inequality. So uh, it's problematic. I, I think it's, and it's, and I think that's the role of what, what a lot of, tech entrepreneurs who are building in my context are trying to fix or solve bringing prosperity to our people. To I want to get back to this idea of bringing prosperity to my people, because I do think it's really important. And if that's the theme of this whole, whole conversation, that's, that's great for me. I want to understand this though, for you personally, or maybe for your family, right? In other words, if I yeah. met you in Europe, in Paris, in London, in New York, or in LA, you don't seem to have come out of that environment. I don't know a better way to say that, right? So from your perspective as yeah. a youngster, as a young adult and now a real adult, like what was your life experience like and how did you get to here? I'm really curious. Yeah. There's a small, small, small percentage of black South Africans or elites on the African continent, right? Who often parents are... Uh, first movers into big corporations and become directors. Parents are politicians. Uh, parents are part of the educated class. They're doctors, lawyers, accountants. I come from a family of, of doctors and lawyers. Got it. And a family that has a strong emphasis on education. So I sound the way I sound because I am uh, South African educated, but I went to one of the best private schools in the country. I mean, right. arguably the best private schools in the country called Kingswood. And so if you had to meet me in Europe or in the US or whatever, you'd be like, but you don't sound like that's your reality. Right. I think what wouldn't be true is that I'm probably one of a small, my family, my immediate family is quite uh, well off. But if I think of my extended family that still live in rural areas and in townships, that isn't true. So... It'll be untrue for me to say that that isn't my problem because I live that problem. I, I, it's, it's, it sits within my walled garden as family members who still live within that environment. Interesting. And again, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make a value judgment about like you didn't have that, so you shouldn't be concerned about it. It's just curious to oh, me. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. No, no, no. That's not what I mean at all, right? But it's just curious to me that like even growing up with a life of privilege, you still look around and go, this still needs to be fixed because that's the thing, right? In other words, even you said, I decided when I was younger that I wanted to bring prosperity to my people. And yet I took a corporate job and I was doing that and which I could have done my whole life. And I was feeling very unfulfilled. It seems to me and thought, never mind, COVID, no COVID. I don't care. I'm going to do this thing that I've already committed to doing. And basically, I don't know, screw everybody else who tells me I shouldn't be doing this thing. And I presume, but I'm curious as well. <laughs> Yeah. But you know what I mean because you're laughing, but yeah. I want to know this too. When you quit your job on March 1st, like we weren't really in the depths of COVID yet, but boy, we were almost, you could see it like on the horizon. You'd be like, uh oh, that looks like a bad <laughs> thing that's going to happen. Did your mom and dad and your cousins, your brothers and sisters, or your friends just go, dude, what are you doing? 
You know, it's it's interesting, and I'll draw it back to what you were saying earlier, right? Is that like, why didn't you just continue milking the system, dude? Like, honestly, just milk the system. You could live. I think it's a conscience, right? You yeah. You look you you live this reality every day, and it upsets you. Yeah, it's disturbing to look at it to the point where you know, you're not in equilibrium as a human. So for my own selfish need, forget bringing prosperity to my people. For my own selfish equilibrium, I felt like this imbalance within me is going to drive me to depression. I can't live like this. Yeah. So the only way that I can feel like I'm doing something about it is if I chip away at the thing that's gnawing at me to say, let's go and fix it, right? Yeah. And that strong feeling COVID or no COVID is not going to change anyway. So yeah. come 1st March, I took a year decision. I said, this has been on my back for a year. Right. There's now COVID. That doesn't really matter. This thing's still there. <laughs> it's not going to be removed because it's like, but COVID is a great excuse to continue having that thing that's disturbing you continue to disturb you. I mean, that within itself is not rational. As If something is causing you abject, you know, pain, you should just remove it regardless of what barriers in front of you. And that's, so when my sister, my friends, my mom, my dad, I, I remember each decision distinctly. You know, my mom says, Danam, which means my child. I don't understand. And I said, but you've lived this. You, yeah, you have to understand. Rural area. Yeah. You have to understand. This is no, I don't. I put you through all of this so that you don't have to worry about that. But now you're telling me you want to go back into poverty. I mean, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm, and then my dad calls and my dad says, are you sure about this? Your mom's calling me. She's really not happy about this. You know, dads do that thing. It's like, you know, your mom says right. I should talk to you. Right. Says, you know, <laughs> this has no impact on me personally, but your mother seems to be upset. So I'm going <laughs> I'm to be concerned. Thanks dad. <laughs> and then and my sister, the doctor, um, Another one's an engineer, and they both called and said, uh, no, this is dumb. You need to stop doing this. Uh, and I took an hour conversation trying yeah. to convince all parties. And the one that got me was my younger brother, because he called me and said, mom said I should give you a call. So this is me ticking a box, <laughs> giving you a call. Are you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. You sure, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. He's like, great. As long as you're good and you sure still love you, brother, chat next week. Right. And he had, and he said that was the end of it. Uh, so I think, you know, they they all their concerns came from the point of view of why are you subjecting yourself to poverty when you don't have to? You've got something good going for you to stick stay on that path, right? Yeah. Whereas anybody who understands this is that you don't go into entrepreneurship because if you're going into entrepreneurship to get rich, you should just not do it. No. Because you're not going to get rich within no. the first five years. Just don't do that. I mean, but if you're going in to do something that is gnawing at you and is driving you to the verge of insanity, you should probably go and address that thing. And that's when you get in. Actually, that's the best reason to do it. It's because there is something gnawing at you that says, I don't want to do this. I have to do this, right? And this gets back to the conversation that we know, but it's really important, right? Because this gets back to the conversation yeah. that you and I had when we did our prep call. And that is anybody can be good at anything, but to be great at something, to actually do that thing that's gnawing at you, you have to care. 
And this is the proof, right, that you care because you're like, my mom, my dad, my sisters don't think that what I'm doing is like the coolest thing in the world. And my friends are like, dude, you had it. And you say, I don't care. There's this itching thing in the middle of my back and I can't really reach it yet. And I'm not going to be satisfied until I can actually reach it and get rid of it. <laughs> no? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You know, to extend, to extend that, someone said, what's the difference between doing something that's never been done before or something that you've never done before? Yeah. Someone says, if, some, if I say, Michael, it is not possible for you to start a podcast. Yeah. That's true. But in the same sentence, if you had to say, if I had to say, Michael, you can definitely start a podcast. That's also true. Yeah. What the only difference is between the two states is that it's a state of mind. Yeah. Is that like your state of mind is not geared up for you to starting a podcast. And you're not passionate about this. You don't want to do it. So why should you? So don't, because you can't do it. Yeah. But if you're saying, I've never done a podcast before, but, but I love podcasts and I'm freaking passionate because I want to talk to interesting people around the world and let my user base in Asia listen to what I have to say. That's annoying at me. Yeah. And I've got to scratch that. And I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to stop until I do that. Then it's absolutely true that you can start a podcast because that you have the drive to go all the way to the end, right? Yeah. And that's the only time I think you should ever get into entrepreneurship. Get into entrepreneurship when that itch is just like, it's unbearable. And I don't think it only extends to entrepreneurship, any real passion. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. I mean, entrepreneurship, any real entrepreneurship is just the, it's just the, the surface that, that we're discussing, but it's true for anything, right? And that's why I always say like, exactly. you have to really care. Here's the other thing I want to know though, right? You've gone into this sort of developmental finance thing and like the way I look at it is Africa is like the last place in the world where this type of growth is going to take place, right? Because if you look at every other continent, whether it's Asia, even Eastern Europe has already gone through a big transformation. Western Europe is a completely different thing, but you know, it's been modern, which is in air quotes. North America is its own thing, but even Central and South America, they're still involved, but Africa is a continent, again, with one point something billion people where the median age is only like 19 years old or 18 years old. It's kind of the future. So in a way, you have to do this thing. And tech is the way to, what's the right word? To enable all of the things that you want to accomplish. No? Yeah. You know, you think about, let's talk of, you know, Asia, why this matters to Asia. We the last frontier. Asia just went through that. Yeah. So a lot, almost 80% of your population, if not more, has seen this transition that Asia went through because they lived it, right? They, they saw did. what the impact of industrialization and infrastructure did to them. Yeah. And they'll say, hey, I remember how we did that. And if they if anybody from the outside in Asia is looking into Africa. What they should be taking note of is saying, I remember that. I remember how when we look like that. And what should be interesting about particularly tech is that for the African continent, we're about to do this leapfrog. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have infrastructure. That same infrastructure you guys built, Asia, the whole of Asia built out, we're about to leapfrog it because technology has progressed past that technology, the, um, the infrastructure that was laid down in Asia. And what we're 
doing that with, and that's the difference between tech in the West versus tech, you know, in my context in Africa, right? Is that tech in the West is some level of, con delivers some form of convenience. It's like, I need to get an Uber. I need to get a ride quicker. I need to get to, I don't want to do my banking at a bank branch, so I'll do it on an app. Or oh, I don't feel like buying a thick textbook, so I'll just download the book. In Africa, they know they barely any bank branches. There's not enough bank branches covering a lot of our people. Right. The infrastructure, transport infrastructure, isn't really there. Yeah, the textbooks haven't arrived. So tech for us is a way of delivering that infrastructure to our people. Not only bringing prosperity, but allowing us to leapfrog and order and grow into exactly what Asia looks like today. So. When I think about our frontier, what makes it so exciting is that you can be part of that conversation as it unfolds. And for someone who's sitting in, in Asia, you know, in, a, in, a, in an Indonesia or China or Vietnam, you can say, hey, I missed out on that last curve. I had a little bit of FOMO. I'd like to actually see what it looks like to, to recreate that, but in a completely new way, right? Yeah. Using a completely new set of fundamentals. And with a population that's hungry to deliver, like you said, we're 18 as a as a continent. We we're ready. Like we like listen, we we're ready to go and move. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some statistic a, a couple of days ago, right, in preparation for this, and I think it was from the Visual Capitalist, and they were like something like 40 percent of the children in the world are going to be in Africa in like 2030 or 2050 or something. And again, I don't believe every statistic I read because that's that's predicated on the fact that nothing else changes and that population growth doesn't change anywhere else in the world, right? But, but here's the thing, though. Do you look at Singapore? And, and I'm thinking about this really because I was, on, I was recording earlier with somebody who works at the IMDA in Singapore. And I feel like Singapore, which was founded in 1965, right? So it's only 57, almost 58 years old. It was a fishing village. It really was half a century ago. And now it's like not just the tech and the finance center of Southeast Asia, but it's the place where everybody goes to to found to you know to found their startups as well. But it's also iterated three or four times in the process of its own personal growth. And you mentioned Dubai as well. So Dubai went to Singapore and said, "We want to build the DIFC. We want to make Dubai the financial center of the Middle East or that part of the Middle East, right? For the UAE in particular." And then you have countries like Rwanda and Burundi, which seem like backwaters to most people that aren't familiar with Africa, but they're also went to Dubai and to Singapore to figure out how do we make those small countries in the central part of Africa just, it, they're just sub-Saharan. Do I have that right? Yeah. And they yeah. say, we want to yeah. build that same thing. But when you look at it, do you look at what's going, what happened in Singapore, what happened in the Middle East and think we can definitely do that here. And if we do, what does it look like to you in 15 or 20 years? I'm super curious. The interesting thing when I look at like Singapore and Dubai's development, you had Singapore, which both of them sort of established themselves as the services uh, hubs of, of their respective regions, right? And then Singapore with shipping. Yeah. I just want to say this first because how old are you? Yeah. I'm, I'm 30. Yeah. So 30 years ago, it was 19. 93? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so before that, what you don't know is that in the 70s and the 80s, Singapore was actually a manufacturing hub for electronics in Asia. 
and companies like Creative Technologies were doing this. And this is what I mean about iteration, right? So they said, we want to be a manufacturing center because that was the thing that mattered. And they took their deep water port and said, we can manufacture things here and then ship it to the rest of the world. The port thing still stays. They don't manufacture a lot of stuff there. But what they did was they saw the future and said, we need to move to services and in particular financial services because that's what's going to drive our growth. And that's why it's so interesting. And if you look at that iteration, that's what I mean. Because now, if you know all of the history, you can see them change and change pretty rapidly. And that's why I want to know what the impact you think it's going to be for what you're building, right, on the rest of the continent, your country as well, but on the rest of the continent to say, we need to have this financial services infrastructure first, because if we don't have finance, then we don't have the, the kind of oil that will make the machinery yeah. of of the economy work. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. So exactly. So if you think about that progression, like iterating, yeah. you have a Singapore or one that is a little bit more recent in history to me, you have a China who industrializes quickly, very low in manufacturing. Yeah. And then what they then do is they progress and say, so we, we can't be here forever. So they iterate and they say, we're going to go into high value manufacturing. And they say, look, we can't be here even in high value manufacturing is cool, but we actually have to start really developing the tech itself. So we need to go and start investing in R&D and deep tech and to really entrench our moat because you can't be cheap forever. No. Now you see what Dubai did to tax regimes, industrial zones that with favorable ways of working in there at a port that allows you to to do very similar things to what I think, you know, Singapore did, and then iterate financial services sector, iterate tourism, iterate whatever it is. I almost hope, and what I'm hoping to see here, and even with Rwanda, is that we don't try and do the slow iteration. We almost try and leapfrog yeah. all of it if we have the ability to do so. So I, I envision us saying, well, Actually, on the African continent, we think we can leapfrog the technology a few steps ahead because we can already see where this world is going. Right. And what we think is, is that we can actually start very quickly establishing ourselves as a tech base for the rest of the world to learn, a base where we can have cheap software developers and expert the, or export them to the rest of the world, which is what a lot of what the work that Andela is doing and some other companies out there, or by extension as well, is that, that starting to establish ourselves as a regional, as an African player to service other startups who want to do uh, interesting things on the continent. There's a big emphasis though on doing exactly what the Asian Tigers did, which is industrialize first, create industrial development zones, and then eventually we'll get and iterate and see where the world takes us. I still think that there's an opportunity to leapfrog all of that and go in straight. Yeah, I, again, I don't know what's going to happen, right? But I do think that technology gives you the ability to do that leapfrogging, right? Because there's no legacy infrastructure there. You don't have to maintain something that they did in other countries. You could just say, we have, we're starting from scratch. And if we can start from scratch, what would we build and that is the, that's the key thing here. Is there, 
and I don't know this, right, but is there enough of a tech-educated population in South Africa to begin with, but in the continent as a whole, to be able to do that leapfrogging? And also, is there a diaspora, right? So if you look at what happened in China, a lot of the Chinese students would go to the UK, would go to Australia, would go to the US and come home and say, now we can build. And the same thing in India, right? A lot of the educated Indians did the same thing. Are you seeing that same thing happen in Africa, but happen faster in the sense that a lot of your colleagues or peers went overseas and now come home? Or are they getting educated at home and just saying, we're going to build here because the, the, the possibilities and the potential is just so huge? I think to, to, to almost layer this, let's start from home. I don't think anywhere in the world right now there's enough software developers. Fair enough. I think the, at the pace that we're moving, <laughs> the, at the pace that we're moving, I don't think anybody has enough. Right? Fair enough. And everybody has has this problem. So there's not enough at home. And there's a global, there's a global uh, race for talent. Yeah. Including our own limited talent that we do have at home, right? If we extend that one step further and talk about the diaspora, What's true to the diaspora, what I'm beginning to see is true for expats who are bored of being in the developed world, is that we have a stream of not only capital, but founders coming back to the continent and saying, hey, I'm from the diaspora. They have the same edge I have. I want to come back and fix this. Right. I want to be part of this change. There's a lot of, there's a lot of founders and um, entrepreneurs who want to do that, who are doing that already Got and it. just need to be given room to continue to express themselves to do that. But there's also an interesting thing that's beginning to happen where you have Americans, Europeans who are saying, I could be part of the leapfrog. I could actually shape this narrative. This is exciting. Now, they might not have a genuine interest in bringing prosperity. I don't think that really matters. I think what really is, is that we need the human capital to take us to the way we want to go if they're willing to offer it i don't think we should be turning it away if it's a limited supply anyway yeah and i'm beginning to see i'm beginning to see a lot of that interesting thing is that a bulk of our funding now in tech i won't speak for other sectors comes from foreign sources like where doesn't come from local mainly the u.s to a certain degree, Europe. I don't think Asia has really gotten involved just yet. Interesting. But a lot of our our, our, our resource, our, our, the money that we get actually comes from foreign sources because those people are having the same conversation. They say, this is really interesting. We think where Africa is going is that we, we could be at the forefront of something really exciting. Here, yeah. Right? We could be part of a conversation of something really exciting here. The sad reality is, is that I think Africa must, depending on what source you you read, raised about between four to five billion dollars last year in total tech funding. Okay. All 54, 53 African countries. That's how much we raised in, in tech funding last year. Five billion dollars. If you look at down. the country of France, if you look at the country of France, they raised like two X that. <laughs> With a population that looks like a rounding error to mine. Exactly. It looks like a small town, you yeah, know. Small and and that gives you and that gives you the idea of the scale of the vast 
nothingness that still exists in between the two of us, right? How do you solve that? In other words, is there enough money in on the continent itself to be able to fund the things that you think or that the entrepreneur or the tech entrepreneurs think should get built? And even if there isn't, how do you encourage more people from overseas, right? Because the same thing happened. Look, the whole Japanese miracle was essentially, and oh, I'm going to get killed for saying this, right, was funded through reconstruction after World War II, for better or for worse, right? Japan was in shambles after World War II, and the Americans came in and said, here's a whole bunch of money, here's a whole bunch of technology, we're really sorry about all this kind of terrible stuff we did. And out of the ashes of that mess came Toyota, Honda, Panasonic, Hitachi, Toshiba, all these unbelievable com companies that were there beforehand but now had access to unbelievable funding and technology. How do you encourage people to do that in Africa so that that massive growth can happen? Because you're right, $5 billion ain't enough. Yeah? It's not, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. So firstly, yeah. the, the first thing that's always been true is that there's too much money in the world. How what money follows is return. Yeah. So this is my finance brain. Go ahead. Right now. Working. Yeah, tell me. And what everybody is chasing is yield or risk-adjusted return. Yep. Now, the perception out there and the truth about my continent is that before you light a fire on, on cash, as in literally build a bond build a pyramid of cash and light it on fire, you probably, the step before that is probably investing in an African tech startup. And that's, <laughs> and, come on. And, and that's just, I mean, that's just the truth, right? Like our currency devaluation situation, our political environment, sometimes the perceived risk of Africa is high. So people are nervous about this place. And how do you change that? You change that with data. Yeah. So not to be emotional, not to be an activist. You have to show a track record of return. Right. And how you show a track record of return is you exit. You show this exits. You show that companies are being IPO'd. You show that uh, you're selling. Um, you you. you you know, companies are returning dividend, whatever it is, but yeah. you need to show that. So that's the first step, I think, to actually solving the problem, right? Is that like, you need to just, there needs to be a track record of exit. Then what happens is that this beautiful thing called foam starts to kick in. It's like, wait, M Michael did what? He's like, oh yeah, that guy 4X did return. And all in of a sudden capital starts chasing the same year. It's like, yeah. oh, Africa is definitely it. I always believed in Africa. I was just <laughs> waiting it out. I've been right? telling you this for years. How come no one was listening kind of thing? Exactly, right? FOMO kicks in and you see this a whole lot of people crowding in. But now the people who are crowding in capital needs, it can't be me um, who has limited resources saying, hey guys, I just invested $10,000 into the African ecosystem. Yeah. <laughs> Who's that guy? But if it's someone, if you've got the, the guy who got you got to FOMO in is a respected voice in the industry, or some oh, of the yeah. people follow, like that, yeah. some of the people risk. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, why is that guy getting involved? And then you see this natural progression where people begin to 
you have signals or what I'd call lighthouses right. on the continent that signal to everybody else to say, hey, guys, this isn't cute. It's relevant. Yeah. But are you working? Should probably take a look but at are it. you working on that as well? In other words, do you do outreach is the wrong word, right? But do you work with your peers to say, we need to be in contact with the funding sources in Chicago, in New York, in Boston, in San Francisco, in London, in Tokyo, in Singapore. We need to constantly be banging on them to say, you missed that thing in um, in Rwanda, or you missed that thing in Nigeria, or you missed that thing in, in Ghana, or in Guinea, or wherever it is, right? Are you, are you doing that as well? Are you working with people to tell yeah. that story? You have to. I mean, part of why I'm on this podcast today is that my hope is a guy who's listening on the podcast is like, hmm, maybe I should take a closer look at this. Yeah. You know, maybe I am missing out on something. And beyond that, also, it's about you you just need to convert one guy or one lady who sits on a board or is influential enough to say, hey, man. I'm actually going to take a look at it. Like you guys should really, really look at this. Yeah. And not a little bit, but, and one of the things that I always say is um, when someone says, I would like to invest a thousand dollars into Queen, but I'm really sorry. It's small. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. Let's do it. They're like, why? I'm like, because if you're willing to give that, whatever is a consequential amount of money to you into an African startup, Someone's going to ask you why. Right. And I want you to tell them why you did it. Yeah. Why you were willing to, to put your neck on the line for an African company when everybody thinks we're crazy. That begins to tell the story and begins to, 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 to relay your message to everybody else that this is. The, the other thing that I am unapologetic about is that I am willing to always take the time to show investors around. Say, hey, look, are you here? Like, why don't you come out? Come out to Cape Town or come out to Lagos or come out to Nairobi. Right. I'll show you what we sold before and I'll show you how big this market is. If we crack this, do you know what you built? You would have been a part of that. And that's, and I think that's important. What's the, what's the most populous country in Africa? Nigeria. And it's like 200 and something million people. Yeah. Sorry. Followed closely by Egypt. Yeah, so this is the other thing too, right? A lot of people, when they think of Egypt, they don't think of it as being African, right? They just they don't even know. I bet if you ask most Americans, is Egypt part of Africa or the Middle East? Do you know what I mean? Like they wouldn't know. But here's the other thing too, is that Egypt is actually developing as a center of um, venture capital, right? Because it's so close to all this money in the Middle East that the money filters into Egypt, but then filters into the rest of Africa. Do I have that wrong? No, that's... It, it filters both ways, but yeah, it does. I think the thing is, is we do no favors to ourselves calling our comrades non-comrades. Yeah, Egypt I, is every bit one of us. Egypt is every bit one of us. Yeah, for um, sure. And they might, and, and, and alienating them to say, no, go to the Arab League is not useful. Um, no. Because they, they're part of, they, the structural economics in Egypt are not too far from ours. Not, not really. It's way more African than it is Middle Eastern, to be fair, particularly from an economic and, a stru- and an infrastructure standpoint, right? And you do have people doing this, right? You have, let's just say you have very well-connected and very famous, even MMA fighters saying, well, that guy's not African. And we don't have to talk about who they are because it's not that important. And you're just thinking to yourself in a private moment, like, 
what's the upside to you or what's the upside to Africa for actually saying that since that guy is proud of his Africanness or whatever you want to say? You got to let that ride at some level. Like we can argue about the apartheid, part, but you know what I mean, right? I agree with you. They want to be part of it. Let them be part of it. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think it, it 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 helps. No, I don't think so. I don't either. think it's useful, and and I don't think it's a useful. It's it's a useful. It's a useful way to spend our time, right? To so. go and tell people these ones are not African and these ones are, and this is why. I think that's silly. I would even get a little bit more extreme. Go ahead. My investors are Dutch, but they've lived in Africa for over 20 years. And for me, I'd argue, where's your heart? And where do you, who do you identify as? Right. And the guy says, oh, I identify as Tanzanian. And I said, well, then you're one of us. I don't understand why you want to say, I'm not one of you. Yeah. I, I don't think, I think identity is important. And it, it plays a big role in how we sell our agenda as to what it is that we want to achieve as a people and how we want to bring prosperity. Infighting is the fastest way to look disorganized. Agreed. And and um, the fastest way to detract from the main mission. Yeah. I think we should almost say no. They're every bit one of us than than you know, than any other 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 African born individual. Yeah. I mean, I I always used to say, you know. I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a point, right? Like, I can have a fight with my brother and say anything I want to him, but but you can't. Meaning somebody outside of the area cannot, right? So, and if you're, if, yeah. if that person considers themselves Tanzanian in the same way that, like, I, in there's part of me, I say this in, in private but in public as well, I lived in Japan for 22 years. I've been in Asia for more of my life than I lived in the United States. Am I actually Japanese or Asian? Not really. But do I feel like... I've lived my entire adult and business life in Asia. Yeah. Do I feel an affinity for it? When I see Japan in the World Cup, am I rooting for them? Maybe. Do you know what I mean? Like when, yeah. I, was in, when I was in Vietnam in January and I watched the Vietnamese soccer team play the Thai soccer team because I live in Thailand, was I rooting for Thailand? Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I'm not Thai and no one's going to confuse me for being Thai, but it's kind of the same thing, yeah? Yeah, very very strong similarities. There's something pulling on your heartstrings that yeah. makes you say, I have to be here. Yeah, and no Thai this. person and ever I says think, to me, don't root for the Thai soccer. Do you know what I mean? And that would be weird if they did. Yeah. I think. Exactly. Exactly. I want to ask you this before I let you go, and because I've just taken up too much of your time, but I do want you back because there's so much more to talk about here. Can we talk just like logistically yeah. about company formation, stock options, do you know what I mean? And and bankruptcy and money movement and stuff like that, because that's one of the reasons why a lot of this stuff goes to Singapore. It's it's managed by you know by English law and everything there is dispute resolution is really easy. What is that like for you as well? This is very contentious. Now. You've 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 dived into a very deep deep deep. I'm going to I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you an answer that represents a political an activist statement more than it does a logical statement okay and i'm going to give you one that is logical so okay. logically speaking if we just take the south african context yep and every other country on the african continent what keeps people away from our context is certainty we just want a track record of knowing 
that when things go wrong, we are going to be fine. Right. Our money's fine. Our interests are protected. That's yeah. all anybody wants to know. What they call it. So everything you just spoke about, English law, um, financial hub, is all saying the same thing that it's familiar to yeah. us. It's right? comfortable. That's why I we're comfortable. Yeah. It's comfortable because it's because I feel safe. The truth about the African context as a whole is that we don't scream certainty to a lot of people, right? There's enough news. Go on to Google and Google African news, and I promise you, you'll see a few scary headlines in there. It's the truth about the context that we don't exude confidence. The other thing, if you talk about narrowed down to South Africa, is that South Africa does a lot of we have an ex- we have a quite a strict exchange control regime, which means getting money in and out of my country is very difficult. Really, it can it can be not diff- it's not very difficult. It's just that you have to you you have to you have to there's some rules, right? You let me not say difficult because I don't want to scare people here. There's some rules you need to Fair follow. Enough. It's not as easy as doing a transfer to the US because I can. Yeah, and that freaks people out. Yeah, people don't like the idea that a government can say no, you can't take your money out, right? right? And that's what contributes to an environment where people get scared. Yeah. If I'm as a now, so as an investor coming from the outside looking in, if you don't want to do a lot of research, it's probably just make my life easy. Yeah. I don't want to have to research your I context. Can I just not send my I don't want to think about it. Can we just send this money to Singapore? Because I've done that before. Or Delaware right? or whatever. Or Delaware or yeah. the Isle of Man, wherever everyone yeah. else goes. The truth about it, and I've said this time and time again, my wife's a lawyer, is that you're probably going to, if you're an African business, you're probably going to run into some problems trying to maintain complex structures like that. And yeah. the upside is minimal to you as a founder. It's minimal. The upside to the investor is that he has certainty. Right. That is it. If someone had to tell me where would you incorporate, I'd probably say Namibia. It's like, why? Zero capital gains tax. The government loves businesses, so they'll give you anything you want. And very, very stable legal environment. Extremely stable. But I mean, no one's going to say, hey, put your money into an Namibian bank account, right? Um, because no one's really showing that off. So as an activist, I tend to say, there's nothing wrong with us. People should just put their money in here. Our banks are some of the safest banks in the world. Yeah. My judiciary, my, my legal system is, I argue, the best in the world. I would argue South Africa has got the best legal and fairest legal system in the world. Wow. That's what I would argue. Okay. And our banks, the safest. <laughs> I know we've been gray listed for whatever reason, reason, but the safest banks. And we have a track record for this. In 2008, when the world was going crazy, our banks were fine. So I think it's a question of time for investors being comfortable. I think it's not fair when you're in a capital starved environment. Right. I don't think you have the leverage to go to an investor to tell him where he should be putting his money. Yeah. If he tells you incorporate in Singapore, that might be your only choice, right? Yeah. I mean, if you ask me, I so to me, I my business is in South Africa. I've incorporated here. 
Why? Because it's easy for me. I know how to use it. Right. It <laughs> right. But that, that's what I wanted to know, right? Because you're walking the walk, but also you're talking to talk, but also walking the walk, right? You said it's easy here. The banking system's good here. I trust it. There's stability. There's, I like to say visibility, right? In other words, I can look out and think, oh, there's not a tidal wave coming. It's just like, it's a beautiful ocean. And I can, I know how to deal with that. And I think that's really important. Yeah. The most interesting thing is when SVB was going bust yeah. and a whole lot of my founder community friends had their money there. Oh God. Everyone was panicking, coming to me saying, you know, where's your money? Are you safe? Are you okay? And I said, I've long never trusted everyone else's banking system, but my own. I worked on my banking system. I've yeah. seen the regulation <laughs> on my banking system. I work with the SOP. I knew when SVB came, I was like, oh, sounds like a you problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not to be selfish to my cousin, but, but, but I live in a stable environment. And that's why I walk the walk because I know that it works for me. Yeah. And uh, we've taken capital from Japan, from China, from the US, from Europe. And no one's once questioned our decision. Everyone looks at it and says, this looks good. This is sound. This is clear. Right. I feel like my money's safe. <laughs> and you know what? And that's all they need to know. Yeah, that's all they need to know. And you know what? That's a great way to end. I feel like my money's safe. I want to thank you, Tanrifika Khadebe. I'm never going to get the company. Ah, that's it. That's the one. That's the one. That was the one. The setting was perfect. The name I can get. This was we'll super get awesome. You got to come back and you got to give me more people to help me tell some more of these stories, right? Like I said before, no one's going to know unless we tell them what's going on, right? And part of the part of the issue here is getting that story out and getting that message out. And I'd love to do more. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Let's do that. Let's do that.